All right. Thank you, Graham. Appreciate that. Good morning, everyone. Any uh, first-time visitors here just want to raise your hand? We just want to say good morning to you. A couple. Welcome. And uh, you're welcome to come on out to Malibu West. If you don't know where that is, the Malibu West Beach Club is across the street from Starbucks at Trancus and PCH. And uh, that's where we will gather this evening. All right, I'm going to pray, and then we'll get into the Word this morning. We're taking a break from our Thessalonians study. We'll get back into that um, after Christmas. And so uh, this morning, we're going to talk about something we haven't talked about for a while, but I'm really excited about it. So um, let's pray, and then we'll do that. Father, we come before you this morning, some of us joyful, some of us brokenhearted, some of us discouraged. But Father, we thank you that we can find, find a footing, a, a steady foundation in you. We thank you that we can open up your word. It reveals who you are. It reveals how you want us to live, how you've called us, how you've reached out to us, loved us, called us to be a part of your kingdom. Pray that as we study your word this morning, that your Holy Spirit would empower the words to go deep into our hearts, into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we're going to uh, look at the topic of money. And I know right when I say that, there's all sorts of opinions and thoughts about that. I do know that there are a lot of you here this morning that are students and you maybe have part-time jobs. There probably aren't even that many people in our church that have like a full-time job. But that's okay. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> uh, but regardless, regardless of that, we are going to look at how an encounter with Jesus changes our view towards money. How an encounter with Jesus changes our view towards money. And then we'll spend a little bit of time at the end applying it to three specific things. And that are, there are, there are three basic things you can do with the money you have right now. You can save it, you can spend it, or you can give it away. You can save it, spend it, or give it away with the money you have. Those are the three basic things you can do with it. So we will look how a life that's been changed by the gospel, how our attitude changes towards money. I do know this, that most people have financial problems in their lives. And all of us are tempted to just ignore those and pretend that those problems won't go away. We've probably all had credit card bills come and just you want to just push them aside and just pretend they don't exist. Or if you're in my situation where you have a family and and you have um, someone go to the doctor, and you have to go to the right doctor and make sure that they do the right lab testing and the right um, family of doctors. And if you mess up a little bit, you get a bill in a certain way, and it's like just this mess. And you just want to pretend it doesn't exist. We're all tempted to not deal with our problems, specifically money problems. We just want to pretend they aren't there. But thankfully... Thankfully, God's word gives us some specific guidance on uh, what we do with our money. I know there are probably some of you here this morning that have zero dollars. In fact, you're probably negative in debt. 
for going to school, but someday, someday, God willing, you will get a job and begin to pay off your loans and debt, and you'll be in the positive someday. So, this morning, gospel lives are changed. Gospel lives, excuse me, gospel changed lives have a new attitude towards money that is both joyful and negative. Gospel changed lives have a new attitude towards money that is both joyful and negative. And so we'll talk about that a little bit. We're entering into that season where there's lots of money going out. We're spending money traveling, buying gifts, um, doing things with our families, buying gifts for our children, buying gifts for mom and dad. And it's kind of a time, season two, where work often slows down for lots of people. So lots of money going out. In fact, if you go to Pavilions, our local grocery store, one thing you'll notice um, that alcohol is front and center right now. And, you know, I was doing a little bit of research, and and people spend ridiculous amounts of money from Thanksgiving to um, New Year's on alcohol. Hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. And obviously grocery stores know that because it's prominent. Prominent half-gallon containers of Alcohol and wine and beer and everything just right there saying, buy me please. Spend your money now. So what does a life look like that's been changed by the gospel? What does a life look like that's been changed by the gospel? And so we will look at this really interesting story about Jesus and a man named Zacchaeus. And it's actually, it's really interesting. So We'll spend a little bit of time just looking at some observations here, and then we'll apply it about the three things you can do with your money, okay? So just some observations. Um, What happens to your life when you have a personal encounter with Jesus? And so it starts with this man named Zacchaeus, and we know that he was the chief tax collector and was rich. He's a wealthy man. Verse 3 says this. He was seeking, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. So a life that has been changed, a life that has been changed by Jesus begins with curiosity about Jesus. A life that has been changed by Jesus begins with curiosity. One of the things that's helpful when we study the Bible is to observe what is not happening in the story. And one of the most interesting things, and this often happens, and this is kind of a camp experience to some degree, but one of the things we notice in the story is that his life is not falling apart. His life is not crisis. When your life is in crisis mode, we will often reach for anything, anything at all that will end the crisis. And Zacchaeus His life is not in crisis, but he has this curiosity about who Jesus is. Many years ago when I was in college, and we went to a a mission, a short-term mission trip to Baja. And on the way home, uh, we wanted to stop and jump in the water and play in the waves a little bit. And so we did, a group of us did. And uh, a friend of mine from Oregon had no experience at all in the ocean and just wanted to keep, keep swimming out further and further and further. Until finally he got to the place where he he realized he was in a bad situation. And it went from bad to worse. And there were a group of us kind of near him. And his his life was crisis. 
his life was desperate. And he began reaching out for anyone near him at all. Sweet little girls that probably weighed half as much as him, reaching out, trying to grab them, push them to the bottom so he could stay above water. Panic crisis. Anything at all that will help me, I'll do it. The problem or one of the potential problems of turning to Jesus in crisis mode only is that you're only, you're only interested in Jesus for the things he can do for you. I'm not saying that Jesus isn't there in times of crisis. He is. But if our sole motive of going to Jesus in times of crisis is for what we can get from him only, it will often be a short-term a short-term experience or short-term relationship with Jesus. One way to think of this in our minds is to understand as, are you a fan of Jesus? Are you a follower of Jesus? A fan of Jesus cheers when things go well and abandons when things don't go according to your plan. Zacchaeus' life is going okay. He's wealthy, but he's curious about who Jesus is. There's a beauty, there's a simplicity in just thinking through this in his intellectual and emotional curiosity about who Jesus is that begins the process of changing someone's life. Don't wait for your life to turn into a mess before you look for Jesus. Will you think about who he is? Will you ask questions about who he is? Are you curious about him? Number one, a life that has been changed by the gospel, a life that has been changed by Jesus, begins with curiosity. Next, we see here, this is interesting. Verse 3 says this, And he was seeking to Jesus... And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. And then there's a but. But on account of the crowd, he could not. Because he was small in nature. Thank you. (laughs) I've had my students do that before. moments where I was thinking about what I was going to say next and I was actually thinking about Joel because I was going to talk about Joel for a second. He was small in stature. Thank you. Here's something that's really interesting, all right? Number, number one, you have a curiosity about Jesus. Number two, to have an encounter with Jesus that changes your life, you begin the process of not caring what other people think about you. You begin the process of not caring what other people think about you. Let me try this one more time. But on account of the crowd, he could not see Jesus because he was small of stature. All right, so here's just, we need to think about this just for a moment. We've got some tall people in our church. Joel's tall. If there's anyone, do we have any people that are like the 5'4 range? Raise your hand. Five, 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 nice, Tracy. All right, so we've got Joel, Joel, 6'4, six, 6'5. Five. Okay. So, yeah, all right. What's the call? Him? All right. So if Joel's standing here and Tracy's behind him, 
And he want, Tracy wants to see Joel, being a normal human being, would probably be okay with Tracy standing in front of him because she's going to come to about right here and not block his view at all. Right? Lower. Lower? All right, sorry. All right. So all of us, I think, I think you know, most of us, the idea here is that if you're in a crowd, it's okay for the short people to be in front because the tall people can still see in back. It's fine. So what's going on here? Why wouldn't the crowd let him in? We have to go back up to verse 2. It says, he was the chief tax collector and he was rich. Think about what's going on here for just a moment. Rome occupies uh, this part of the world right now. They are the world ruler. And they will impose heavy taxes on Israel to subjugate, to maintain control. And so Zacchaeus is a tax collector for the Romans. He is viewed as a traitor. He is the rejected one. He was the despised one. Think about it if you, if you want, maybe one way to help, helpful way to think about this is um, World War II, Poland, in Warsaw, one of the things that the Nazis would do is they, would, they started a Jewish police to help monitor the movement of the Jewish people. And just in doing some reading this week on that, some of the Jewish police were extremely brutal towards their own people. How do you think the Jewish people living in the Warsaw Ghetto viewed Jewish police who were siding, joining, partnering with the Nazis to save their own skin, to lead and further the process of, of moving Jewish people to, to camps. They were despised, and rightly so. Zacchaeus was not a good guy. He was hated. He was ostracized. But here's the, here's the, beautiful, the, the beautiful or the significant side of this. Here's what he does. Even though he's rejected and despised and hated, verse 4 says this, so he ran ahead and climbed up onto a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass by. He didn't care what other people thought about him. The temptation, the temptation is this. Here's what Zacchaeus could have done. These are, the follow, these are the fans of Jesus. Remember that Jesus is walking down the street. People are, he's the rock star. People are climbing. They want to get near. They want to, get, they want to see something. They want some benefit. These are the fans of Jesus. And Zacchaeus could have said, look at those self-righteous, moral, arrogant people. They won't even let me in to see Jesus. You see the fans of Jesus are temperamental, they're self-righteous, and they won't let Zacchaeus in. But what he does, he pushes aside what people think. He pushes aside the righteous religious people and looks to see Jesus. He doesn't care what people think. 
This has tremendous implications. Think about how our spiritual lives are hindered because we're afraid of what people might think about us. Think about conversations you might have had with people out of fear of rejection. Zacchaeus is a man who was hungry, who wanted to understand who this Jesus was. He did not care what people thought about him. If you're wondering why your Christian life is just maybe stagnant and boring and nothing ever significant happens, the question you have to ask yourself is, are you ashamed of being a Christian? Are you more concerned what people think about you than your own devotion to Jesus? That's a hard one because we all love and seek human approval. We value it deeply. We care more about that often more than anything else. And we wonder why, though, if our Christian lives are just boring, irrelevant, and there's no meaning or significance to it. Zacchaeus, even though he's rejected and despised, he's going to do whatever is necessary to find out about who this Jesus is. The key to help us understand this, the key to help you understand the difference between being a fan of Jesus and a follower of Jesus, the key to help you understand the gospel of grace, is how you view your own sin. The people lying the streets, cheering for Jesus, had this supposed devotion and love for Jesus, but they were unwilling to look at their own sin, and they would not let the tax collector in. We have to ask ourselves, are you staying away from Jesus because what others might say about you? Are you caving into social pressure? Has your life become so concerned and and dominant with what other people think about you that you're not willing to speak from your heart about who Jesus is? The third thing that we see from this passage, if you want to have a real-life encounter with who Jesus is, is you have to understand the difference between grace and moralistic religion. Number one, you have to have a curiosity about who Jesus is. Number two, you have to push through. You have to begin to value who Jesus is instead of what others think about you. And three, you have to understand the difference between grace and moralistic religion. And here's where we see this. Verse 5 says this, the last part. Zacchaeus is Jesus. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Jesus is initiating. And here's what we, there's just so much nuance Information that we must just pay attention to. Jesus initiating a relationship with the, with the despised, rejected sinner, the hated one. Jesus is initiating a relationship with sinners. The thing that we must notice here, skip down, verse 9 says this. And Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. Jesus is saying that he is the source of salvation. That he is God. That it's because of who he is that salvation is available. 
Verse 6 says this, So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. The idea of hospitality during this time, and it's still even true in many parts of the world, in African culture and Middle Eastern culture, the idea of hospitality has more significance than we have with it today in America. It has the idea of a deepening relationship, of commitment to the well-being, to loving that person. Not just a quick bite and run, but an idea of being interested in developing a personal friendship, of establishing and developing community. And so Jesus is saying here, I'm the one that I will initiate. And here's how you can even test your own life. Are you a fan of Jesus or a follower? Here's what fans do. Verse 6 says this. So Zacchaeus, he hurries down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, here are the fans of Jesus, they all grumbled. Fans of Jesus are legalistic, moralistic, self-righteous people who want to say this. Get your life together. Clean up your life. Then you can come. Then you can come to me. It's a minor change. The order is small, but it's tremendously significant. One leads towards an understanding of grace and salvation, and the other leads towards moralistic, self-righteous religion. The story here is this. Come as you are. Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. As you are, the rejected, despised sinner The Christians who don't understand the gospel grumble. The fans of Jesus who don't understand their own sin grumble. Has tremendous implications to how you live your life. Has tremendous implications to your friendships, to our church. Jesus is saying this. I'm coming to your house today as you are. Do you understand the gospel of grace? Number one, an encounter with Jesus that changes your life begins with curiosity about who Jesus is. Number two, you stop being concerned with what other people think. Number three, you understand the difference between grace and moralistic religion. And fourth, it will always produce a change in your life. An encounter with Jesus, an encounter with grace, an encounter with the gospel will always produce change in your life. And here's the change that we see. Verse 8 says this, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone, anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. A radical change of his life. A wealthy man giving half of his wealth away. Half of his wealth away. Because he had an encounter with the living God. And he goes on. This is profound. Think about how our world, our country, would be different. All the business owners who have defrauded people, who have lied to people, who have blackmailed people, who have distorted the truth, who have exaggerated the truth, all to make money. And after an encounter with Jesus Christ, they say, I will repay 
fourfold. Zacchaeus is a man who was wealthy, who loved his money, and had an encounter with Jesus, and radically changed his life. The key aspect here of this that we want to talk about just for a few minutes is learning that it's not the amount. This is not a passage where I'm going to say you need to give half of your money to Jesus because what we see in other passages, and here's what's really interesting. Jesus knows your heart. There are other passages where Jesus says, give it all away. Everything you own, give it away. When he's talking to the Pharisees, and they say that they tithe 10%, he says that's enough. So we've got 10%, 100%, and half. When you understand the gospel, when you understand how Jesus changed your life, there's something inside of you that changes. <clears throat> Let's just finish up then with just some specifics in this and how we can, what you can do with the money you have. I said at the beginning that the Bible or the gospel paints wealth as both joyful and negative, or we could say dangerous. All right? Number one way that the Bible depicts wealth or money as dangerous is this, that you believe your money is yours. The number one way that you're going to mess up your financial life is believing that your money is yours. The Bible is clear that everything he gives you belongs to him. It changes your attitude. The Bible is pro-wealth accumulation. And we'll just start just from the very beginning in the book of Genesis. Wealth accumulation began in Genesis with farmers. Adam and Eve were told to cultivate and grow the earth. And so there, are, there was nutrients in the soil. There are seeds, plant, harvest, plant more harvest. So the Bible is not anti-wealth accumulation. It's anti the love of money. It's anti the idea that it belongs to you. So what do we do with our money? I said earlier there are three things you can do with your money. You can save it, spend it, or give it away. And the gospel will produce a new attitude in your life through these things. Raise your hand this morning if you've spent money already Sunday morning before noon. Anyone? I have. I bought coffee this morning. All right, man, you guys are good. Like five of us? <laughs> All right, I'm going to sit down and then my sermon's over because I'm spending money. We all have our little things, right? All right, so how does the gospel change our attitude towards money and saving money, spending money, and giving it away? All right, so number one, when is saving viewed as negative? Just, we'll go quick through this. And I, I, I'm, as I study this, I'm like, I need to study this even more and more. And so maybe we'll do one sermon on each of these in uh, January. But Luke chapter 19, turn with me for just a moment, please. When is saving money wrong or negative? 
Thankfully, Jesus is teaching us and not me. By the way, I'm not a financial guy. There are people in our church. My job is to tell you what the Bible says. So if you want to argue with me, you can argue with Jesus because I'm going to just basically read it to you. All right. When is saving money negative? Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells the, the, the parable of the rich fool. And I'm just going to skip right into the parable just to, uh, for sake of time. Luke chapter 12, verse 19 says this. This is a parable. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool. You are a fool. The Bible warns against saving if you view your money as a way to hoard things. I will say to my soul, you have ample goods for many years. Just relax. Eat, drink, stuff your face, have fun, and be merry. These, these are sobering. You just, listen, just for help, you don't want to be called a fool by Jesus. That's like a bad thing. This kicks us right in the face, right? I looked everywhere in the Bible about retirement. It's not in the Bible. It's not there. I looked and looked and looked. The word is not there. The idea of saving your money so you can just chill and relax for the rest of your life is not there in the Bible. Do not save your money for your own selfish desires. It gets worse. 1 Timothy. <laughs> 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9. But those who, who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Saving your money to be rich. If you're saving your money to be rich, be very careful. He says this, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into senselessness into harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Girls, be very careful if you're going to marry a guy whose ambition it is to be rich. The Bible says your life will be a ruin and destruction. I'm going to read just a, a paragraph from John Piper related to this. And this relates to spending too, but I'll just read this now. John Piper, one of the main dangers in being comfortable in our Christianity is that over time, comfort tends to begin to feel like something that God or the world owes us. That, one, that what we once called luxury is now called a need. What we once called a luxury is now called a need. More and more we want things, security, comfort. We find our conversations with people even drifting into the subject of special new things that we have just bought or, and we're not talking kingdom language anymore. Think about, 
man, this, this just blasted me when, when I read this. How much I talk about ridiculous things, of things I just bought or want to buy, or the web pages I go to of truck parts or surfboards or ridiculous things that I spend my time on, and you're not talking kingdom language anymore. He says this, the last sentence. It's a creeping kind of gang green with a smiling face on it that eats away at the heart of the kingdom. That eats away at the kingdom. The Bible is not anti-wealth creation. It warns severely about the self-centered desires to save money, to hoard money for your own self-centered desires. Well, when is it useful to save money? Let's say something positive. <laughs> the Bible does talk about saving money for the right reasons. All right? And these, there's just so, there are so many right reasons. Just really quick. Number one, 1 Timothy 6.18 says this. You should save your money to do good. You are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for yourselves in heaven. It's okay. It's good. You should save your money so you can be generous, so you can help others. Proverbs, there's so many amazing Proverbs, and I'm gonna, I'll spend more time in January on this, about saving wisely. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Save little by little. Don't go for the quick, the quick scheme to get rich. Save for emergencies. Proverbs chapter 6 through, uh, through verse 8. Save for emergencies. Save out of wisdom. There are lots of reasons the Bible talks about that you should save your money. Save your money for an emergency. Your car will break down. Not if, when. Plan ahead and save. Be wise. There is such a fine line in our attitude towards money. We'll move, let's move on. The gospel also gives us a new attitude towards spending. And there are just tremendous warnings and dangers about how we spend our money. I'll just be brief on this. This is from... Um, a book just written by a pastor named Jamie Munson from Mars Hill Church. And how do we make our, our spending joyful? Okay, remember, number one, all of us have a little bit of money. You can save it. You can spend it. You can give it. What do you spend your money on? And he calls this his three priorities. Number one, prioritize Jesus in your life. That's kind of vague, but here's what he means. It is ingrained in us to spend our money to create our own identity. When you have money and you're able to buy things, whether it's clothes or toys or cars or whatever it is, we are all tempted to create an identity around that. If you love if you love the earth and you want to make it green and, and you want to buy a Prius and you feel good about that, that's great. If you want to buy a big diesel truck and you want to burn biodiesel in it and you feel like you're saving it, 
That's great. We're all tempted to find our little things. Girls, how many shoes do you have? How many pairs of shoes do you have? Do you want to buy more? Just one more pair. All of us, I don't care what gender you are, where we live, how much money you can afford to buy a house, we are ingrained. Our DNA within us is to create an identity through the things that we buy, our style. Everyone loves to have their own style. And Jesus, and, and in this book, Jamie Munson talks about just thinking through that, that your, your identity is not on the things you buy. Your identity is found in Jesus. That's who you are. You were bought with a price. You were bought with the blood of Jesus. That is who you are. Not the clothes you wear, not the college, not the kind of truck, not the, not the place you're going to live when you graduate. Your identity is in Jesus. Your second priority that you should spend your money on is relationships. Husbands, wives, spend your money on providing for your family. All you guys out there, someday you'll get married. If you're not married now, you're going to have kids. You have to spend your money on providing for your family. You don't go out and buy a new surfboard when your kids don't have shoes, right? You take care of your family. You prioritize relationships. None of us would ever do such a thing, right? Yeah. Number three, you prioritize mission. You think about the big picture of your life and the mission of Jesus to develop disciples. Listen, I understand everything I just said. Spending your money without creating your identity, spending your money on meeting the needs of your family, of prioritizing your spending habits towards the mission of Jesus. Listen, there's a part of this where that's almost like nonsense. If, if we, when we leave here, if God's spirit is not opening our hearts and our minds to the truth of God's word, this is such a foreign concept and there needs to be an awakening, a strengthening, a pouring out of God's Spirit on us when we think about the culture that we live in. Western society culture is driven by consumerism, by materialism, by buying new things. Our economy is based on you getting sick and tired of, of the thing you just bought, so you'll buy another one six months later. It fits into the pattern of ridiculousness, of economic suicide on your part, of just continually spending and buying things, trying to form an identity, of trying to make yourself happy. The Bible is also clear about things that you should spend your money on. We don't have time, but just quickly, again, in 1 Timothy, Paul talks about this. Spend your money on meeting the needs of your family. If you don't, if you're not taking care of your family, you're worse off than an unbeliever, the Bible says. You Christian parents, moms and dads, husbands, be extravagant in spending on your wives, on your kids. Show them your love. 
show them a sacrificial heart, that you're willing to put aside your own desires to enjoy times with your family. The Bible, and I'll finish up, but the Bible does not push a poverty gospel or um, a prosperity gospel. All right, it doesn't. I'm not saying be poor, and I'm not saying strive to be rich. The Bible, the Bible destroys both of those. It says wealth accumulation is good, but be very careful. Understand the dangers. Understand the priorities of your life. Understand that you have a natural bent towards consumerism, towards buying things. The third thing you can do with your money is give it away. And believe it or not, you can give it away with the wrong attitude. You can give it away out of guilt. You can give it away grudgingly. And the Bible says don't do it. Don't give your money to the gospel. Don't give your money to the ministry of the gospel if you're doing it with a grudging attitude. One of the reasons why we don't pass a plate around is that we don't want people giving out of guilt. If you're passing the plate around and someone throws down a $100 bill and you pull out a one and, and you're like, oh man, I've got a one. Maybe I should try to do more. You should throw down a 20 instead. You're giving out of guilt. You're giving for the wrong reason. Listen, we, we bring in as a church significantly less money than if we pass the plate. We've thought about it. We've talked about it. We don't want anyone to give to our church unless it's, they're giving cheerfully. You can give for the wrong reason. You can give for the right reason. But I will say this. A life that has been changed by the gospel will give. A life that has been changed by the gospel will give. One of the most important things, if you are a Christian and you've been a Christian a long time, or if you're a baby Christian, one of the, the most pressing or one of the most visible ways you're able to monitor your own discipleship, your own growth in Christ, is how much you give. Is it hard? Is it like trying to touch kryptonite, like pull out, you don't want to touch it, you don't want to give it. It's yours, it's mine, all mine, Right? When you renew your mind and understand what Jesus Christ has done for you, and I'm not there, but I read this this week, and I listened to a sermon this week on this, and I'm like, man, I, I, need, I need to understand this better. He said, the wrong question to ask is how much should I give? It's the wrong question to ask. The question is how much can I give and still be responsible? How much can I give? I've got my family to take care of. It's appropriate to save, appropriate to save for college. It's appropriate to go on vacation and have fun with your family. It's appropriate to, to go to the orthodontist, all those things where money and just family. If, listen, if you don't have kids yet, it's expensive. Fam <laughs> raising kids, it just is. It's just expensive. It costs. But... Giving generously. How much can I give to the church and still be responsible to my family? 
and meet their needs. I do feel like that there's so much, so much lacking in our lives, and even honestly in my life, that we just need to get grounded in the area of finances and understanding the value of, of living within your means. I know it's a radical idea in, in our American culture to spend less than you make. To spend, there's just some simple things in life you can do that I've screwed up on. So I'm not going to be stand up here and and pretend I'm amazing because I'm not. But the idea of spending less than you make will have significant positive impacts in your life. If you're thinking about getting married, you'd better have a money talk. One of you will be tempted to spend. One of you will be tempted to save. You better come together and figure that out. My motive, my motive in talking about this is that money is something we all touch every single day. We earn it. We spend it. We give it away. We save a little bit. And we need to understand, first and foremost, through an encounter with Jesus and the new attitude that changes, the new attitude that's created in our lives. And you've got to ask yourself, if, if, you, if you've been... A confessed follower of Jesus, and you've never given anything to the ministry of the gospel, you have to ask yourself are you just a fan? Are you just a fan? Do you only like Jesus for the things he does for you? Or are you a follower? Because a follower understands first and foremost the depth of their own sin and understand the freedom and the beauty of what Jesus Christ has done for us, the generosity that Jesus gave to you first. That will produce a generous heart. I just want to finish with this and encourage you and challenge you. Think about the concept of generosity and who you are. I'm not talking about just money. I'm talking about money, your time, your gifts, your talents, your abilities? Are you a generous person? Are you giving? What's your reputation? Do you only think about yourself? Are you willing to help other people financially with your time, with your abilities? As you deepen your understanding of the gospel, that will work itself out in your life. Let's pray, and I'm going to pray that we will be a people of generosity, people who will give of themselves for the ministry of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for uh, the story of, of you and Zacchaeus and how a radical, a radical change happened in his life not because of the things he did, not because of how he cleaned up his life, but because of how you, how you interacted in his life and how it changed his life. Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning which just was struggling with holding on to the power of, of money and, and building their life on it, building their identity on it, I pray, Father, that would break free this morning, that there would be a true freedom that comes only from knowing you. 
Father, it doesn't matter if we have a little bit of money or a lot of money. Pray that we would use wisdom in how we save, how we spend, and how we give. Purify our hearts. Help us to love you and follow you more powerfully. In Jesus' name, amen.